Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 144. I hope everyone out there is having a great holiday season. I actually got some guests lined up for next week. We're going to do some recording. And in the meantime, I've got a solo episode on a topic that I think is long overdue. Um, originally, I was going to do it as a, a three-part Q&A episode. And actually, this one, I think, deserves its own episode. So I'm going to really hone in on one specific topic. It's something I've spoken about a few seminars in the past, and I think it's really, really important that we bring it to the forefront um, as we talk about baseball development. So hopefully you like it and spread the word. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Okay, as I mentioned in the intro, this actually started out as a Q&A um, that I think deserves an entire episode on its own. So uh, I'm going to lead with the question that was asked of me. It said, you've been training baseball players of all ages and ability levels for decades now. So I'm curious as to whether there is one overarching lesson that you think stands out above all else, or maybe it's the single biggest mistake you see in player development these days. Um, I actually love this question, and, and I've never loved questions that are like, if you could only do one exercise for the rest of your career, what would it be? Um, I do think this one is actually a, a really, really vital consideration. And if I had to answer it you know, very, very succinctly, I'd say that the biggest mistake I see is, is basing interventions on averages. So I'll elaborate, and, and I think the best place to do so is, is actually with a quote. Um, Todd Rose uh, wrote a book called The End of Average. 
average. Really, really good book. Uh, the subtitle is How We Succeed in a World That Values Sameness. Um, he's a Harvard professor. And there's a quote from the book that I think jumps right off the page. It says, the real difficulty is not finding new ways to distinguish talent. It is getting rid of the one-dimensional blinders that prevented us from seeing it all along. We live in a world that demands we be the same as everyone else, only better, and reduces the American dream to a narrow yearning to be relatively better than the people around us rather than the best version of ourselves. So I love this, like the best version of ourselves. Um, you know, Brian Kaplan is a co-founder at Cressy Sports Performance Florida, had a great line. He said, never coach the different out of somebody. And it's, it's always resonated with me. Um, Brian's now the assistant major league pitching coach for the Phillies. And, um, he's a guy that taught me, you know, really a lot about looking at deliveries, um, you know, and relating them back to what we do physically. And, and we'd always been doing it, but I think, you know, we're seeing it in a much different light nowadays. And, and, and as we kind of talk about this, this tendency to, to fit to averages in the industry, it's because averages are easy. There are numbers that we can hang our hat on in a very objectively driven society. Unfortunately, they don't necessarily always come with context. Um, and, and one that I think is a great study to really highlight, to illustrate this, uh, Mike Reynolds, a good buddy um, who did an awesome study back in 2008 when he was still with the Red Sox, um, changes in shoulder and elbow passive range of motion after pitching in professional baseball players. It was in the American Journal of, of Sports Medicine, really a, an excellent study that just showed that basically when you're exposed to high-level eccentric stress, on the whole, pitchers tend to lose range of motion. So they, they lose elbow extension, they lose shoulder internal rotation. No big surprises on that. But when you actually look at the, the study, um, I think it's really, really important to look at the, the total motion. So internal plus external rotation of the shoulder. And, and we're talking about the before measurements here. So, you know, certainly there was a, you know, there's a loss about 10 or 11 degrees after throwing, um, you know, and, and that loss persisted, you know, up to 24 hours. But um, the bigger thing I looked at is, you know, when they were kind of at rest before they actually had a pitching intervention, I was curious, you know, what's their, their total motion. Um, and what was really fascinating about it was, um, you know, basically their, their total motion was 190 degrees. Okay. So that's internal plus external rotation and major league pitchers. The average was, was 190 degrees, but what was really intriguing about it was that the standard deviation was 14.6 degrees. So in other words, you had guys that, you know, within one standard deviation could have been 176 degrees and other ones that could have been up, you know, to, to 204 degrees. Um, but again, that's one standard deviation. When you look at a large sample size of players, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be outside that one standard deviation. They're going to be, you know, a little bit more outside the, the, the realm of normalcy without being a true outlier. And I think those are the ones that we really have to think about when we train athletes is, you know, if you have a guy who's, who's hypermobile, really, really loose, maybe they're rolling in with 220 degrees of total motion. They're, you know, past two standard deviations. Those might be athletes, you know, that, that rely heavily on their crazy laxity to contort their bodies in crazy positions. So we have to make some, some honest discussions of, you know, is that, is that what makes them good? Do we need to figure out ways to give them good stiffness in their delivery so they don't wind up in really, really bad positions? Um, you know, or is it something where we need to try to, to find a, you know, a way to throw some constraints into, to effectively shorten them up? Don't get too long with your arm action. Don't drift, you know, um, so that your line to the plate is really, really bad. But that study was really, really important. Um, and I think a lot of people looked at it just because of the adaptations that take place, you know, both transiently and over a 24 hour period after pitching. Every time I go back and look at that study, I, I cite the, the total motion numbers and the, the standard deviation. So, um, the last thing you want to do is take an athlete that's really loose and stretch them. And the last thing you want to do is take an athlete that's, that's really, really tight, you know, so on the other end of the spectrum that, you know, that athlete with 160 degrees of total motion 
and you know ignore stretching and, and really just focus on adding way more stiffness to the system when they may be actually looking for more tissue extensibility. Um, so once we appreciate that that you know impacts how we might manage athletes, I think we can appreciate that there you know there there's certain athletes that we would never ever teach somebody you know to throw that way, right? Guys like you know Chris Sale obviously is a is a super uh, unique delivery, very, very closed off. He's a really athletic guy that's able to get on time and make it work, but you would never teach that to a young player. Steve Ciszek's, you know, one of our longest tenured clients, got 12 years in the big leagues, and Steve's a guy who kind of just found his arm action by accident. I think you'd be surprised at how many major leaguers didn't have pitching coaches until they got to college or even to professional baseball. Um, and in many ways, they found a way to self-organize to, to the right position for them. So I think we have to be really, really careful about coaching the unique out of people um, as they work their way along. Um, so, you know, I think an interesting uh, additional kind of parallel to this that's really, really important to this discussion is, is kind of this concept of, of, you know, how a spine actually is structured. Um, you know, we'll see athletes that have like just these big burly builds. They're like rectangles, right? They're these, you know, if you're familiar with some of the, like the infrasternal angle discussions, your classic wide infrasternal angle, they look like linebackers, right? But the other end of the spectrum, we have, you know, really these guys who are, who are slighter framed. They're really, really elite rotators. In many cases, they're the narrow infrasternal angles. You know, so you see a lot of, of very wide blocky guys in the NFL, and you see a lot of narrow Gumby-like guys on the PGA Tour. And, and what we know is that if you take a rotational athlete that's really well equipped for, for rotation, these, these PGA players, or in many cases, our pitchers, and you just treat them like a linebacker, you can have problems. But likewise, if you take the linebacker and you throw them into a really aggressive program of rotation, you can get problems as well. And I think it comes down to like, you know, how our spines are, are equipped. Certainly we have spine, um, you know, shapes and, and sizes further up in our, in our thoracic and our cervical spine that are very well conditioned to having a lot of rotation. Whereas, you know, our spinal segments, our vertebrae get much larger um, and they aren't nearly as well equipped for rotation further down. They're, they're more equipped for, for actually handling compressive stress. One of the interesting uh, points that, that Dr. Stuart McGill, who's a, you know, one of our most popular podcasts ever, was that he talked a lot about how spine thickness influences disc herniation rate. So if you have a really, really thick spine, um, there's actually way more stress and bending, right? So if you take an NFL player and you all of a sudden, you know, have them go take golf lessons every day for a week and just swing out of their shoes, you're probably going to see some, some spines that are in rough shape, right? Um, and, and the reason is very simple, like a thick spine like that, they, they generally have a larger disc diameter and, and disc diameter, you know, being bigger is, is a, is better equipped, um, to support compressive stress as opposed to a lot of bending. Um, you know, conversely, you take a lot of these more slight spines that may have a smaller disc diameter, and then you, you basically go and you throw a lot of heavy squats and deadlifts and things like that at them. It might actually create more problems. So I, I think I'm more mindful than ever is, is understanding um, you know, what an athlete looks like in the context of, you know, their, their actual structure, um, both, you know, the way that they're, they're made, but also, you know, some of the acquired movement patterns they have, some of the, the structural deviations from normals they may have. Maybe it's a, a bony overgrowth at the hip or, you know, something to that effect that, that may preclude them from, from doing certain exercises. And then I'm also mindful of how do these 
changes from their normal positions, potentially impact the movement that's in front of them. And the last thing that we want to do is just throw them all on the same program. I think that's where, you know, a lot of athletes really struggle. Um, you know, I've, I've been very outspoken in the past about what we see in a lot of like college weight rooms where an athlete really takes a huge step forward in their first year or two when they get bigger, they get stronger. And then we see a lot of athletes that get significantly worse in the latter half of their college career, just because there aren't adjustments that are made with their training age, you know, the accumulated stress in their body and their, their new movement needs. Um, so what we've always tried to do is meet athletes where they're at, have really good conversations on the front end as part of our evaluations. We try to loop in a lot of, you know, baseball specific assessments, you know, looking at, you know, not just their, their deliveries, their swings on video, but also looking at how things may have changed over the course of the time on a lot of the external outcome measurements, everything from velocity and spin rate to, you know, horizontal and vertical movement, um, vertical and horizontal release height. All these things are, are really, really important for us to kind of scrutinize so that, you know, if it does come back to it, we can, we can re-engineer a previous version of an athlete. Um, so, you know, what I think all this comes back to is, you know, if, if you have to be really, really careful about, uh, you know, fitting somebody to an average, if, if that's something that could potentially take away what makes them successful, you have to have some honest conversations about when do you coach? Um, and I think, you know, there, there's different levels of coaching. There's a subtle technique cue, and then there are more aggressive programming overhauls. So some of the questions that I think are, are really, really important for us to ask first, you know, has an athlete been injured using their current approach, right? Is it the kind of thing where, Hey, I blow up my back every time I deadlift, you know, is it really worth going in and throwing deadlifts in that athlete's program? Probably not where you're going to start, right? Maybe it, maybe over a course of a couple of years, you, you, you regroup the pattern, you gradually test the waters, you figure out where it's maybe load appropriate, all these different things. But you have to first figure out like, is, is what they're doing keeping them from actually contributing on the field? So that's, that's priority number one. The second thing is, has the athlete stagnated or been ineffective with the approach? So you have to evaluate critically what they've done and figure out, hey, have they, have they stayed the same in spite of markedly higher workloads? Or have they actually gotten better um, you know, and, and thrown harder or been more durable? They've, they've gotten healthier. Um, or have they struggled, right? Did they make a change where, hey, the athlete dropped 20 pounds and all of a sudden their velocity went way down? You know, that probably wasn't an effective one. So you have to really scrutinize you know, what's changed, um, you know, and, and was it actually a, a viable change for, for where they were trying to go? And sometimes these things can be really, really hard to scrutinize. And I would tell you that the hardest athlete in this regard to truly evaluate is the athlete who likes to program hop. You know, the one who basically does a new diet each week, who does a new different training program each week. And they, they program hop so much that you can never actually critically evaluate what worked and what didn't. Um, I think it's, it's most important for us to, to recognize that one of the, the biggest emphasis points that we need to make with our athletes is to make them actually appreciate that, that continuity, consistency are really kind of like where they're, they're ultimately going to make their money. I actually had a recent tweet where I said, in, in training, just about everything works. However, nothing works if you don't stick with it long enough to let it work. Um, so understand how long it takes to get adaptation, what the adaptation is that you're trying to drive. And then on the tail end, you can actually scrutinize whether you've got the, the desired outcome. Point number three is, is the athlete novice enough that a change is easy to acquire and implement? So you might overhaul a delivery in a 14-year-old with a, with a terrible arm action and bad direction from their back hip and all that. You'd be very reluctant to overhaul a delivery in a Cy Young Award winner, someone who's, who's way, way further down. 
the more training age they have, the higher the training age, the more training experience they have, the more subtle any changes should be. And the more the athlete should really be involved in that process. Um, I think it's, it's vitally important for you to engage people so they can, you know, at least give you context for why something might work and might not. I was actually speaking to a really high level thrower who's had a ton of success. One of the, one of the all time greats, um, who, who basically had his organization tell him that he, he needed to add a horizontal slide or something with a lot more like sweeping movement. Um, he tried to add it and he absolutely got, got shelled. Um, and it was just that they, the hitters told him something very different than what the metrics did. Um, he was much, much better off with like a gyro slider than one that was very sweepy because hitters saw it differently and it, it, it took away some, some of the, the rest of the effectiveness of his arsenal. So it was very important to, you know, have an athlete that could push back against that. Hey, I'm, I'm not just pitching to, you know, what the track man or the rap Soto says. Instead, I'm pitching to what the hitter tells me. And, and he was enough, you know, of a, a veteran to be able to speak up and advocate for his case. That's not always the case for you know, a minor league kid in double A who, who doesn't necessarily have a voice in the room. So I think it's very important that, you know, we appreciate novice athletes can, can take more extensive overhauls, whereas more veteran athletes, it needs to be baby stepped and they need to be involved at every step in the process. A fourth point is what's the minimum effective dose that can be applied to test the waters of change. Um, and, and I think a, a great read on this front is, uh, is upstream, um, by, uh, I believe it was either Chip or Dan Heath or the two of them together, but just an outstanding read that, that looked at this concept of, of trying to attack um, more upstream problems that could have trickle down effects. So as an example, if you overhaul your diet, you sleep better. Those are things that have downstream effects. They, they impact multiple systems. They'll, you know, they'll improve your nutrition. They'll, you know, certainly improve your body composition. They'll improve your energy levels, how well you recover from training. Those two things have just such a, a pronounced impact on a number of different things, you know, for what is effectively a minimum effective dose. So, you know, when it comes to actually coaching, what are the things that we can do that's upstream, you know, that, that can test the waters of change? Maybe it's the way we set up a really, really subtle thing, right? Um, maybe it's a, you know, a, a one inch move over on the rubber to one side or the other. Um, no, you know, a few different players over the last couple of years who have, who have seen their careers absolutely change just by changing where they stand on the rubber, um, you know, in their delivery. Um, you know, another one that I think is, is really, really important minimum effective dose, um, you know, in terms of how you would test the waters of change is, is really just taking an exercise out. You know, sometimes we see athletes that really, really struggle and we think about, all right, what can we add? What can we add? And, and sometimes it's as simple as taking something out like an actual reduction. And, and very rarely do you have an athlete that's, that's just overwhelmingly attached to one exercise. Um, you know, what do you typically see? You see people maybe with like a big powerlifting background or something like that. They're just adamant that they want to squat, bench and deadlift, you know, and sometimes those are the things that are, you know, limiting their rotational capacity to be successful in a baseball realm. So that might be something that, you know, it, it's, it's much, much easier to just take something away than it is to continuously add and then, you know, figure out how the pieces are going to fit together. Point number five, how can you involve the athlete in the decision-making process with respect to modifications? And I touched on this on a, on a previous example, but I think whenever possible, you need to give athlete an ownership stake, um, you know, a, a contributing like discussion point um, as part of this process. Um, really, really important to get them going with any kind of adjustments with respect to their career because you want them to be fully bought in. You want them to be fully comfortable in the fact that it's actually taking place because um, that's the only way you're going to truly test whether an adjustment to a training program, um, whether it's towards the average or away from the average, um, is really going to be successful. Um, you know, number six, how can we change a situation rather than the person, right? 
you know, there, there are scenarios where it's really, really tough to change someone's demeanor or approach, something like that, but you can change the situation. That's where, you know, some constraint based training, things like that. Um, you know, opportunities to make things more externally focused, um, you know, as an, as opposed to an athlete who's very internally focused, those adjustments always seem to do just a little bit better. Um, so I'm always mindful of what we can do to make adjustments. Sometimes that's, you know, adjusting a training environment, getting people around different training partners to, to get more out of them. Um, all these different things are on the table, but, um, I think we need to be mindful of like people very rarely change particularly as they get older and older and more set in their ways. So what we always have to try to do is, is, is adjust situations in order to make them more successful, Gover- change the, the environment that, that governs how they act. And then last but not least, you know, can a change be more efficiently implemented utilizing an athlete's learning style? Certainly the concept of like visual kinesthetic, you know, auditory learners, you know, I, I think has been heavily scrutinized in, in recent years and I have mixed feelings on kind of where I stand on all that stuff. But I think it goes without saying that you do have certain athletes that are, that are purely visual learners, others that, you know, do well with just verbal cues and others, you know, they need you to put them in an actual position. So I, I think, you know, as, as I, you know, think back, there are certain, you know, maybe learning styles that predominate with even the most advanced athletes. I think the more advanced athletes get, the more they tend to handle verbal cues well. Um, but I, I do think you're always going to have those people that want to see it. I've had some of the best athletes on the planet just to say, show me, um, when I describe an exercise and I'm, you know, fully on board with jumping in and doing that. So just a really like Im- important big picture discussion on, you know, understand that not all athletes are the same. You know, I think where CSP is, has largely made its money over the years is, is with respect to, to individualization. We've always tried to feel like athletes could view us as a competitive advantage because uh, they have an individualized program that's based on, you know, on, on an evaluation. We learned about who they are and we've also, you know, documented things heavily over the years so we can see how they may have changed what's worked, what hasn't. Um, I think all too often we see like the one program on a dry erase board mentality, um, you know, where we see, you know, an athlete that, you know, just tries to do the same thing over and over and over again, year after year. And sometimes what worked in the past won't continue to work. So you have to be willing to, to reinvent yourself and, and try some different things without completely overhauling the program. So, you know, to recap, um, you know, big picture, you never want to base your interventions on trying to make someone, you know, fit the average. Um, what are the questions we ask? Has the athlete been injured using an approach? Has the athlete stagnated or been ineffective with the approach? Is the athlete novice enough that a change is easy to acquire and implement? What's the minimum effective dose that can be applied to test the waters of change? How can you involve the athlete in the decision-making process with respect to these modifications? How can we change a situation rather than the person? And can the change be more efficiently implemented using an athlete's learning style? So hopefully this is something you found useful. Certainly some of the questions that I ask myself on a daily basis when we interact with athletes. Um, but biggest takeaway of all is don't ever be afraid to ask questions um, because chances are that your perspective of an athlete um, might naturally be biased towards an average that you don't even know you're, you're actually working towards. There's a little bit of like maybe a, an allegiance to some things that you've, you've developed over the course of the time. So remain open, ask yourself these questions over the course time and, and really involve the athlete in the process and you'll never be let down. Thank you.